This is Our American Stories. And we're going to dig in and tell the story of an American entrepreneur, an internet impresario and personality. And his name is Gary Vaynerchuk, known as Gary V, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru. First known as a leading wine critic who grew his family's wine business from three to $60 million. He's also an angel investor and advisor to Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, among others. He's a regular keynote speaker at global entrepreneurship and technology conferences, and we just think the guy's story is fascinating and his advice really compelling. Like many great American story, Gary V's story starts with an immigrant family coming to the United States to pursue the American dream. I was born in, uh, in Belarus, in the former Soviet Union, and my family immigrated here when I was three years old. It was very, very difficult. We were extremely poor. As a matter of fact, <laughs> this stage is dramatically bigger than the studio apartment that me and my grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents lived in. It was difficult, mainly because great-grandma was kind of crazy, uh, um, but also because we had no cash, we didn't speak the language, grandma got mugged a weekend, and Queens, New York was not the paved streets of gold that my Russian parents thought it was going to be. It was the late 70s, it was the Carter years, my dad was a construction worker in Russia, that's what he thought he was gonna do in the US, but clearly that wasn't gonna happen. The great uncle that was gonna kinda take care of us, my dad's great uncle, while we were in Italy getting our visas changed, cause I don't know if you remember, but Russia and America weren't best friends back then, so it took a while to get here. They wanted to make sure I wasn't a spy. Um, he died, so that didn't work out um, for anybody. Um, and we came to the US and it was a struggle. This great uncle of my dad's was very well off and he owned a small liquor store in New Jersey. So that's pretty much what my dad did. He commuted from Queens, New York to Clark, New Jersey. I still make fun of him because I'm convinced that he spent more on gas than he was getting paid. And he started our lives for us. And between my dad's hard work, and I didn't know my dad until I was 14, and we'll get to that in a minute, and the fact that my mom, how do I put this smartly, is the greatest human being of all time, and instilled so much, thank you, and instilled so much self-confidence in me that it should probably be illegal, and is clearly the foundation of everything I'm going to achieve in my life, um, we start our lives. He started making money at a very young age, but his father had different plans for young Gary V. I had seven lemonade stands when I was six years old. So I had a lemonade stand franchise. How many, how many people here remember the big wheels? You remember, got it? Yeah, those were awesome. I used to drive my big wheels around Edison, New Jersey to pick up my cash like I was Tony Soprano. <laughs> it's crazy. I learned a lot of business lessons there. This one kid, Eric Conrad, his parents were divorced. I didn't understand, I was so little, I didn't understand why he would be in our neighborhood in the summer but not in the winter. He would come every summer, he was a baller. He would make his own signs. He was a hustler, I'm sure he's doing well now. And I learned my first lesson. He would, you know, I would give them all 50 cups. Cups or a quarter, it was easy math. He would steal cash. He would take some, but he sold so much more than everybody else that I never got rid of him. 
And so it's very funny what you can learn and I've used that concept you know, still to this day. So it's funny what you can learn and where I really started learning business was when I was 12 years old because when I was 12 years old, I started a massive baseball card business and I was selling $1,000 to $2,000 a weekend in the malls of New Jersey and that was tremendous. You know, I had like $10,000 cash under my bed when I was 12 and let me tell you something. When you're 12 and you have 10 G's of cash under your bed and you're not selling weed, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Very good job. So I was happy about that. That was awesome. And then I turned 14 and my dad ruined my life. He walked in, he said, you're going to work today. I said, what? I have a baseball card show. He said, no you don't. You don't mess with Russian immigrant dads. I decided I should probably go if I wanted to continue growing. Um, So... We, we, we went to the liquor store, I cried the whole drive home to the store, cried, real cry. 14, I'm, not, I'm proud, I cry, cry, devastated. Dad, how much are you gonna pay me? Two bucks an hour. I started crying much harder. <laughs> and I proceeded to spend 10 hours in a basement bagging ice and made 20 bucks for the day. Instead of going to the mall, hanging out with friends and girls and selling baseball cards. Clearly my life had taken a bad turn. And this is what I did for the next two years. It was devastating, I hated it, and my life from 14 to 16 professionally was dark. Gary's father had finally let him out of the basement when he realized a golden opportunity that would change his life forever. About 25 people came in and asked for the same thing. Camus Special Select 1990 Cabernet Sauvignon. It was the Wine Spectator Wine of the Year. And finally, you know, people coming in, we had sold out of it the prior week because it just got announced. And finally, you know, people coming in, do you have it? No, and they're leaving. And you know, the entrepreneurial DNA is like going off. I'm like, this sucks. This is not good business. I don't like this. We have like six parking spots and they're all taken up by people that can't buy something. I'm like, I'm gonna take a back order. We didn't have a back order system, but I didn't care because I was going to school on Monday. <laughs> so, guy, next guy that comes in, I'm getting a back order. Guy comes in. Sir, what's your name? You know, da-da-da, got his name, address, phone number. How much would you like? I'll take 10 cases. So I'm like, man, this guy's an alcoholic. (laughs) I was like, are you gonna drink all that? Are you having a party? He goes, no, 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 I collect wine. That was it. At that moment, I can, you know how you can, you know how like when big things happen, you can, I can literally, I remember the weird t-shirt I was wearing, I was sitting, in the middle of the store, my life changed because I sat there and said, because at this point I wanted to help my family business. As any good punk entrepreneur kid, you think everything your dad is doing is wrong, right? And I see all these things that I can fix, but I wasn't interested in the subject matter, right? I was already thinking about what was I gonna do when I converted this whole thing into a baseball card store, right? <laughs> I started learning about wine. No 16-year-old should know as much about the Loire Valley in France as I did. I was so ridiculously confident and I so knew what was gonna happen that I realized that high school was the last vacation I was ever gonna have. And you're listening to Gary Vee, his story in his own words, serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, a guru on all things web and digital. More on his story, more from him, Gary Vee's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. Gary V's story continues here. Again, an American serial entrepreneur, four-time New York Times bestselling author, speaker, and internationally recognized internet guru and personality. He was not your average student, Gary V, and he struggled with school as he tried to grow his father's wine business. Somewhere around fifth grade, I realized I did not give a crap about Saturn. Algebra wasn't gonna do it for me. And so what I did was I deployed and honed my skills at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So by the time I fell in love with the notion of what that was gonna be, that was already ingrained in me. I thought I was gonna open up 8,000 wine and liquor stores, the Toys R Us of wine, sell the franchise, buy the New York Jets. Here's where the story starts getting relevant to you. I go to college. I'm playing Madden 95 in my dorm room. Dominating, by the way. <laughs> my friend runs in and he says, you have to come and see this. I finish my game, I walk into a room and there are eight 18-year-old dudes hanging around a computer. Now, for a lot of the youngsters in this room, you don't recall this, I was 18 years old at this point and probably spent less than three hours on a computer in my life. By being a DNF student and getting an F in computer class, I was able to stay off the computer, right? <laughs> I get on there. In eight minutes, somehow, I end up on a message bulletin board in AOL that's selling and buying baseball cards. In 14 minutes, I make a transaction. Within 20 minutes of ever being on the internet, I said, my God, I don't need to open up 8,000 stores. I'm gonna do something on this. 18 months later, I launched one of the first three e-commerce wine businesses in America called winelibrary.com. Don't clap. Here's why. The first 18 months that that site ran, that site cost $15,000 to build. We were a small family business. $15,000 to build that website. In the first 18 months, because I was still at school, I wasn't fully back at the liquor store, in the first 18 months on that $15,000 investment in 1996, seven, eight internet world, where most people still weren't on it, that $15,000 investment brought back $480 in sales. I don't know how many of you have a Soviet father, but Sasha Vaynerchuk was not happy with the ROI. This, this failure taught Gary a very important lesson about success. It was one of the more important lessons I've learned in business. The disproportional reason so many people in here will not win. Let's just get right to the chase. It's your lack of patience. For some unknown reason, when people go into ventures like this and other things, they somehow miraculously think it's gonna happen in five minutes. That you're the one person in the world, whatever you guys call your big club and put posters of each other up on, you think you're gonna be in that circle in five minutes for some reason, because you're the most charismatic, you figured out some weird system, you've got it. And the lack of patience is what hurts so many people. And so by losing so much money in those first 18 months, I had walking into a 
system that I had to be patient, I had to build, I had to work. From 22 to 30 years old, for eight years, in my 20s, I worked 15 hours a day, seven days a week, in my dad's liquor store. Today, with all the things that have happened to me, I get emails on Facebook from friends I went to high school with, often starting with, Gary, you're so lucky. I reply to every single one of them, all of them, with the reply of an opening line first, Jan, great to see you again. You look great, kid's super cute. P.S. I am super not lucky. Let me remind you, Rick, remember when we graduated college and you went to the Jersey Shore every weekend and hooked up with chicks and drank beer? I worked. Rick. In those 15, 18 hours a day out of school, I grew my dad's business from a three to a $60 million business, which meant I was 27 years old running a $60 million business, and I was paying myself $54,000 a year. You know why? Because I'm patient. Because I don't need a cool watch. I don't need a fat whip. I want to build something. I want to build something. From there, Gary continued to build by using new online tools to deliver content. There was something called Google. I looked at it, I saw this new ad product where if you searched for a wine, you could buy the first result? That was insane to me. I thought that was incredible. And so I bought the word wine and many other words like Cabernet and Pinot Noir the day Google AdWords started. Uh, How many people here have done Google AdWords in their career? Very nice. I owned the word wine the day Google AdWords started for five cents a click for nine months before anybody bid me up. And that worked. And I kept going and then my career took a massive change that I think will really impact a lot of people in this room if you follow this blueprint. There was a new website out that I was intrigued by. It was called YouTube. Everybody in the world was really not ready for online video, it hadn't happened yet. I've been wanting to like play in that space. I finally saw this site, YouTube, it was a couple months old. There was not a single video on YouTube that had a million views yet, period, on the whole platform. So seven months after YouTube came out, I started Wine Library TV, which was the first time I was doing content, not advertising. And the premise of the show was very simple. I sat at my desk with four bottles of wine and I had somebody videotape me drinking it for 20 straight minutes. (laughs) It was a great gig. And somehow a year later, hundreds of thousands of people watched me taste wine and give my thoughts. And what I did was I understood the wine business at that point. I understood my craft at that point. How many people here have a friend or relative that is fairly into wine? Raise your hands. So you guys know exactly what I know, which is the second somebody gets just a little bit of wine knowledge, you're drinking the wrong year, shut up. So what I did was by knowing that, I talked to people about wine instead of down to them. I talked about wine the way it actually smelled and tasted to me instead of the words on the back of the label. I called wines, you know, this reminds me of what a racquetball smells like when you first open the container or If I ate an entire pack of Big League Chew and swallowed it, this is what this tastes like. Or when it didn't go as well, if you were at a farm and a sheep farted in your face, this is what (laughs) this wine tastes like. 
Gary Vee then goes on to talk about the importance of what we call social media regarding attention, sales, and connecting with people. Everybody was talking about this app called Twitter. Everybody thought it was the stupidest thing of all time because who cares if you're walking the dog or eating pizza? I thought it was the future of email. I invested in Twitter. I made a video about it. Facebook saw it. I spoke at Facebook. I became friends with Zucks. I invested in Facebook. And then I saw a bunch of high school kids playing on Tumblr and I invested in Tumblr. I'm rich. I run a company right now called VaynerMedia. We're a $100 million a year strategy and creative and media agency. We have Under Armour and Toyota and Dove and Budweiser and the biggest brands in the world paying us to sell stuff on the internet. Let's start with a couple things that you need to know. Social media, it doesn't exist. It's a slang term. Social media is the slang term for the current state of the internet. If you are sitting in this crowd and still not devoted to these platforms, you will lose. Because the only thing that people care about in marketing and sales that are smart and successful is attention. And if you don't realize that everybody's attention is now in their phone, you are not paying attention to society. How many people in this room, in this arena, (laughs) how many people in this arena are always within arm's reach of their cell phone in every 24 hour window? Over 50% of everybody's time in the world on a phone is spent on a social network. This is where we live. And for you to sit in this audience and disrespect Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, all these platforms is an insane thing. When I had 50,000 followers on Twitter, I could get more people to do something than I can today at 1.3 million followers on Twitter. It's why when you roll up at me and go, I have this many followers, I don't give a crap. It doesn't matter how many followers you have, it matters how many followers you have that care. You're not paying the bills with 100,000 Instagram followers that you bought on eBay, jerk. Yep. Exactly right. You're listening to Gary V. His story, by the way, and his advice. If you're in marketing or anything like it or advertising, that last piece is for you. Gary V's story here on Our American Stories. This is our American stories, and one of our favorite subjects is work, what we do, how we got there, and why, and the intersection of commerce, too, because we spend a lot of our times working or scheming or trying to figure out how to get a product to market or how to come up with something new, and sometimes we just do it on general principle, just for fun. And today we're talking to a man with a dream job for anyone who loves the outdoors or animals, and we first learned of him in a Wall Street Journal article by Harriet Torrey, which began with these words. The first time the bears steal human food, they are relocated 30 miles away. The second time, it's 60 miles. And the third time, it's 100. After that, they become consumer product consultants. And by the way, the headline of that article was, Nice Trash Can, Let's See What the Bears Think. And 
Well, we're joined by Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana. God's country, if ever there is, in this great country. Among them, running the Bear Safety Product Testing Division. And Randy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Randy, just a bit about yourself first. Your parents, uh, where you grew up, and some of your passions as a young guy. Sure. I grew up in uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos, but uh, 21 years ago, uh, came out to Yellowstone, visited, and fell in love with the place, and uh, ended up moving here. I actually live in Idaho, but work in Montana. I'm only 10 miles away from from the uh, Montana border. And and yes, uh, I do have a dream job. Um, and, and love my job. I've been here at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center 18 years. You know, what people don't know and so often forget in this great country is you get out of Philadelphia and you go through the rest of Pennsylvania, and the Poconos know it's not Yellowstone, but my goodness, hunting, fishing, and plenty of bears, right? Yes, very much so. Pennsylvania is one of the leading states with black bears. No grizzlies, but lots of black bears. And they're no friend when you're, when you're lost in the woods, are they? Sure, sure. You know, when you surprise a bear, whether it's a black bear or a grizzly, uh, on, on a food source or a mom and her cubs, they can be uh, very defensive. Yeah, news alert while hiking. Don't disturb the bear. This exactly. is pretty simple. And uh, so your, your, your parents, tell us a little bit about your, your, their life and a little bit about what they instilled in you, values, your, you know, what you care about, uh, Randy. Sure, sure. Sadly, my dad's not, no longer with us, but my dad was a drill instructor in, in the Marines, so I drew up, uh, grew up with a pretty stern uh, background there. Uh, my mom's still alive. She's down in Florida enjoying the warm weather. And by the way, we were 39 below zero uh, here in West Yellowstone, Montana this morning. So still trying to warm up. Yeah, and you're not getting mom to visit anytime soon, are you? Oh, no, not when she lives in Florida. Now, tell me this. As, you, as you're, you're doing different jobs along the way, ultimately all of it's to get connected to that great landscape, I can only assume. Yes, very much so. I, I am an avid hunter, hiker, fly fisherman, and it's all right in my backyard here. And tell folks about about Yellowstone and, and the folks uh, who are listening who've never been, uh, what they're missing, uh, what they should come and see, and when is a particularly good time to come for those who might be inclined to not want to fight the lines or the, or the, or the traffic or the population that swells? Talk a bit about Yellowstone. Yeah, well, Yellowstone is very, very big. It's 2.2 million acres. Uh, it is only open to vehicle traffic right around the end of April, uh, right to around the 1st of November, and that's because of the depth of snow that we get. But um, to me, the best time to come is either the end of May or the first two weeks of June. Um, after that, you know, with the kids getting out of school, it does get uh, very crowded, and it seems to take away the, you know, the beauty of it when there's so many vehicles and so many people. But uh, I've spent a many a day in Yellowstone Park in the month of May and have seen 10 bears in, in one day. You do have to be prepared for inclement weather. Um, the park can, you know, elevation-wise can go very, very high. Um, and, and so it could snow at any time of the year. Uh, snow has been recorded every month of the year, July, August. Um, so pretty crazy. But in the wintertime, definitely a special time to come. You can either go in on a snowmobile or what's called a snow coach and you experience how the animals that are still in the park, because there is a lot of animals that, that migrate out of the park, but in the wintertime you have a much better appreciation for those animals that are trying to find a food source when it's you know, 20, 30, 40 below zero and, and five, six feet of snow on the ground. 
You know, National Geographic recently did a full, full uh, subject and full issue on Yellowstone, and it and it spent quite a bit of time on the bears and bear attacks. And I don't know if they were on the increase or just that there's more uh, human contact. Uh, but talk about you know the 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 the, the nature of that uh, assault and what people can do to prevent it. Before we dig into this Wall Street Journal article on the other side, I mean, that's got to be the worst thing that can happen to you. But what are things you do to either prevent it? Can you, can you figure out where the bears are ahead of time? And then B, when you see one, what do you do? What do you actually do? Sure, sure. So, so there's an estimated uh, population of 700 grizzlies in Yellowstone Park and an average of one bear attack uh, per year where there's uh, around 4 million visitors. So the chance of getting attacked is, is, is pretty slim, uh, better chance of getting struck by lightning. But if and when that encounter does happen, there's, there's a couple things that you need to do. Is, is, um, uh, before you, uh, you're leaving the trailhead, you want to um, uh, make some noise. You're walking with a group of people, perhaps. You hear the bear bells that people might wear on their shoes. The whole idea is that uh, grizzly bears in particular do not like to be surprised. And so if you're making noise, you're walking down a trail, um, more than likely you're not going to see a bear because you're going to scare that bear away. But let's say you see that bear at 200 yards, uh, mom and, and two cubs perhaps, a grizzly. And so you're going to talk in a low, calm voice, kind of let the bear know, hey, I'm a human, I'm not a, you know, an antelope, I'm not a deer, and, and you're going to start to obviously walk away um, but not run. Running elicits a chase response, so you want to uh, return to the trailhead, return to your car. But if that bear does decide to charge you, hopefully you've remembered to have your pepper spray, your bear pepper spray, and you're going to have it on your hip where it's easily accessible. That bear is charging at you. That bear can run 35 miles an hour. That's 42 feet per second. So you have to be ready. And, and yes, that bear is going to be very close, 10, 15 feet away, 20 feet away when you start to discharge that can. Um, And with a bear's sense of smell, smelling food up to 18 miles away, um, they, they are greatly affected by that bear pepper spray, and, and it basically renders them useless for a couple hours. They, um, uh, you know, their, their eyes are watering, they're, they're tearing, they're coughing, and, uh, and then, of course, you're going the opposite way. But fortunately, not too many encounters, but, yes, you need to be prepared. You need to look for fresh bear scat, fresh bear sign, and let those uh, bears know that you are out there hiking. Yeah, and that's, so that is pretty extraordinary. Four million visitors, 700 grizzlies, and only one bear attack per year. But there, there are probably multiple sightings, I would assume. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. It, it, it's a, um, a, a personal, you know, uh, uh, distance that you need to stay away from those bears, and whether it be a bison, 1,500-pound bison, have a, a personal space, just like a grizzly bear, just like a moose. And so if you get into that bear's personal space, then you're threatening that bear, and, and, and perhaps that bear is thinking that you are a threat to them, even, even though, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so, again, you need to, to let your presence be known to those bears. And, and no, people see, see bears all the time. What, what ends up happening is you got the camera in your hand. You want to get that great shot, so you just keep getting closer and closer. And before you know it, uh, whether it's mom and the cubs, uh, and they basically say, hey, that's, that's too close. And then she charges. Yeah, and by the way, don't get too close to my wife in the morning either. I give her lots of space. When we come back, Brandy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And he has a great job, a job that obviously he just loves. And it's running the bear safety product testing over 
at the Grizzly Wolf and Discovery Center. He lives in Idaho, works in the beautiful state of Montana, West Yellowstone. When we come back, more with Randy Gravatt. This is Our American Stories. Black bears weigh between two and five hundred pounds. Brown bears weigh between 300 and over a thousand pounds. Black bears run away from you. Brown bears run at you. When attacked by a bear, simply lie still on the ground and cover your face and head with your hands. When the bear is finished batting you around and mauling you, contact the U.S. Forest Service. This is Our American Stories, and we pick up where we left off with Randy Gravatt, a man with many jobs at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana, among them running the bear safety product testing. So before we dig into the testing, talk to the audience about the multiple types of bears that are out there. How many types are there that Americans can encounter, and what are they like, these different types? Because the bears are very different as categories, aren't they? Yeah, there's um, you know in in North America we have the brown we have the brown bear which is also the grizzly bear and then we have the black bear. The grizzly bears pretty much are only in both uh, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And they're very intelligent animals. I, I think that needs to be stated. And they're also very food driven. Talk about those two things. Sure, they're they're very very smart. They also have huge appetites, and that's what tends to get them into trouble where we may average 2,000 calories a day, a bear could average 5,000, and then, then that number even goes much, much higher right before hibernation. It could be as high as 20,000 calories a day so that they could build up those fat reserves before hibernating. And so where do the problems come between people and bears? I assume it's just the food. It is, it is. Um, when, when bears gain access to unsecured um, um, unnatural foods, whether it be dog food, whether it be the, the bird feeder, whether it be the garbage, uh, the dirty barbecue grill, um, those bears are going to take full advantage of that easier meal than going out in the woods and tearing apart a log and getting some ants and some, some, some grubs perhaps and, and some blueberries, huckleberries. Um, and so they're going to go the easy route every time. And the problem lies that that when they become, you know, unafraid of people, they become around our houses, there's then uh, the potential for problems as in a, a bear attack to humans. And, and so in, in, in large measure, many of these problems are occurring in, I would, I would assume, the outlying suburbs that intersect with nature and intersect with the woods and even in, in traditional suburbia? Talk about that. Sure, sure. As we continue it to expand into, into bear country, it, it definitely is a big factor where more problems arise. Uh, where a bear once freely roamed through that meadow, through that field, through that woods. Now there's a mall. Now there's a housing development, perhaps. And, and so it's definitely very, very tough for them. You know, on average, a female bear has a home range of around 50 miles, and a male uh, double that, if not even a little bit more. So they travel a great distance throughout the day, always searching for food. 
And why didn't why and how did the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, where you work, become the place uh, to test bear safety products? Where, where and how did that happen, Randy? Sure, sure. Well, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center opened in 1993, and we recently, in 2000, became a not-for-profit uh, wildlife park and educational facility. And we were approached by an organization called the IGBC, that stands for Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee, and it's made up of a bunch of members, whether it be Forest Service, Park Service, even Parks Canada, uh, a bunch of uh, great folks. And, and the idea is for them to um, sustain the bear population, to monitor the bear population. Well, with so many bears being put down that, that had gained access to that unnatural foods and the garbage and such, and that were being put down, um, they came up with an idea that uh, there would be a testing program. And with our eight grizzly bears, uh, we made the fit. And around 15 years ago, we were approached to see if, our, uh, if we would be willing to do it and it's worked out very well. Um, so basically what we do is whether it's a manufacturer that produces a cooler, a polycart trash can, a dumpster, uh, they either ship the product here or they bring the product here, and then we put it into the bear's habitat. We do put the bear's favorite food inside of it, so that would be peanut butter, that would be fish, honey, um, and, and then it has to withstand 60 minutes of contact time most of the containers cannot uh, have a hole larger than an inch and a half. If it does, it is considered a fail. And then there is a, a, another factor with those polycart trash cans, those ones that you'll wheel out to the end of your driveway. A lot of times when they're uh, bear-resistant, uh, you and I would take our finger and put it into a latch mechanism to release that lid. Well, that latch system has to work um, when it's done being tested for that 60 minutes. Walk us through a product testing session and what happens. And I love the uh, I love Kabuk or is it Kabuk? The Kobak, the destroyer, is your most skilled testing bear. Talk about him or her, and then talk about what this product testing session looks like. And do you have video of this? Because we'd love to see it. Sure, sure. No, I, I definitely have video of it. Um, yeah, Kobuk uh, is from Delta Junction, Alaska. Kobuk is actually a river uh, in Delta Junction, Alaska. That's how he got his name. But, yeah, he's been here for um, 18 years, and he's uh, earned that uh, nickname as Kobuk the Destroyer because he seems to be able to get in the most products. You and I, Lee, we can take our hands. We can, at our wrist, we can turn our hands side to side. Well, Bear cannot do that. Um, and, and, and some of these trash cans that are being tested, it's ones where you and I would take our fingers and reach up and, and release a latch mechanism. Well, grizzly bears with huge front claws, somehow, someway, Kobuk has learned to, to literally twist his wrist a little bit, twist his body, and get those claws up in there and, and release that mechanism. Um, yeah, most, most manufacturers fear Kobuk the destroyer, but... Uh, many of our other bears are, are very uh, adept at getting into a, into the products because, again, there's that special food reward. We test anywhere from 40 to 80 products a year all summer long is our testing season. And um, uh, so when there is no bears in the habitat, uh, I will take a product, I walk it into the habitat, and this is an acre-and-a-half habitat with two ponds with live fish, we take that product, so we'll talk about a cooler. That cooler is going to have padlocks. It has to have padlocks. They're going to rip the rubber latches off right away. So we put the food in, put the, the locks on, put it out there. We leave the habitat before the bears come out, 
every product tested is uh, filmed for documentation. But those bears come out of what we call a bear den. They come out, and, and with their sense of smell and their vision, they're, they're able to see that cooler. They're walking up to it. They are uh, biting at it. They're chewing at it. They're rolling it around. They're even flipping it up in the air, perhaps to land on a rock, to maybe break the lock open, to break the latch system, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're super, super smart, and, and yes, through all these years, because a bear can live up to 30 years long, and, and so some of our bears are very old, and, and through these 15 years of testing, they've learned you know, better, better ways to get in each, each and every time. Yeah, they've learned some tricks as they get older. They do. They do. Again, because of that food reward. Yep. So here's an example, Lee. So let's say we had 10 coolers in a row, and every one of those coolers passed the test. The bears were not able to gain access. Well, the chance of a bear trying to get in that 11th cooler uh, is pretty slim because the first 10, they were not able to get in. So you know the term, we throw them a bone. So what we'll do is we'll take a cooler, put that same amount of food inside, but maybe uh, just use zip ties versus padlocks. Bears come out, they get in, they get a food reward, and, and it just uh, you know it, it, it excites them all over again to, to keep uh, testing the products. And the hope here, I would assume, is that the, the more uh, bears have no success with human coolers and garbage cans, uh, the better off we all are because there are fewer encounters because the bears don't get that, that beautiful food reward. Exactly. That's the ultimate goal is that it benefits the bears out in the wild. If a bear does not get a food reward from our, our house, our neighborhood, they're going to stay in the woods where they belong. And, and if I may use an example, if we have the Jones and we have um, the Smiths, and the Jones are very, very clean, uh, no bird feeder, no dog food, the barbecue grill, uh, but then the, the neighbors are not so clean, and uh, uh, the uh, mom and two cubs are frequenting the area. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night, and the, the clean family, they, they, somebody forgot something in their vehicle perhaps. They walk outside. It's dark. It's midnight. It's 11 o'clock. And they surprise mom and the cubs. Well, uh, they end up getting mauled where, where here they were the ones that, that were being clean and, and you know, careful with their food when their neighbors made the mistake. And that's why we all need to be on that same page and not allow those bears uh, near our homes. Yeah, but it only takes one or two of us to ruin the ruin it life for the bears and for ourselves. So uh, well, well taken. Point well taken. How can our listeners, Randy, visit and support your Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center? Talk about that. Sure. Um, again, we're not for profit. We are open every day of the year. Uh, obviously, we have a website, uh, grizzlyandwolfdiscovery.org, and then we do have what's called a uh, the webcam for our wolves, a webcam for our bears so people can view them uh, limited hours in the wintertime, and, and that does bring up something interesting as far as us being 39 below zero this morning. Our bears here at the center, even though we don't do the testing in the wintertime, um, our bears uh, do not hibernate because of a constant food supply. So the same is true for any bear in the wild, whether it be Florida, whether it be Texas, Minnesota. If bears are able to obtain a food source, and whether it be warmer temperatures, they're going to not hibernate and or hibernate for a shorter period of time. Well, Randy, we appreciate you joining us. And we're talking to Randy Gravatt, the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. And, Randy, we'd love to visit you when we go out. Uh, we're out in Jackson. We have an affiliate there, and we'd love to come visit when we get the chance. And thanks so much for joining us. 
Exxon. Thank you. Sounds good. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you can catch all the work we do at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And if you've got stories like this, and we just consider these great American stories, post them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. It's time now for another look at health care. And here's our chief health editor, Jim Glassman, introducing our next What Happens When story. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good? Patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad? The system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even basic things work or cost. The ugly? Well, there are some diseases that just aren't fair. And the path to discovering treatments for those diseases is awfully complicated. But as we'll see, there's plenty of love, hope, and even joy in stories with great tragedy. This What Happens When episode is what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Faith Garcia. Take it away, Faith. There is no easy way to talk about this subject. So we're going to just take it head on. Right now we're on a grief journey, right? I mean, it's changed a lot for our lives since diagnosis. And now since Mila's died, the grief journey started before she died because the anticipatory nature of our situation with the girls and Batons. But then even with Mila dying, that you're really on a new, on a real grief path. I mean, a different, much more tangible grief path that we each work through, and we are at different spots, and those paths have totally different routes through the maybe even different forests, but at the end of the day, you are going to the same place. I mean, I have to talk about it like I know what I'm talking about, and I don't. I mean, I feel like I'm two steps into my grief path, which will last a lifetime. That's Frazier Gieselman who, with his wife Dana, kindly welcomed us into their home in Memphis to talk about having two daughters with a rare genetic disease called CLN2-Batten disease. This condition causes protein to accumulate in the brain, killing working cells and leading to language problems, seizures, losing the ability to walk, blindness, dementia, 
and eventually death. Batten claimed the Gieselman's middle daughter, Mila, just three weeks after her sixth birthday. And their youngest daughter, Elle, is fighting it now with the help of some new cutting-edge drug therapies. But to understand the Gieselman family's healthcare story, we have to start with their love story. Frazier and Dana overlapped by a few years in high school in Memphis. But Dana moved away to Birmingham, Alabama when she was 15. Lucky for Frazier, they both wound up attending college at Auburn and fell into the same group of very close friends. And once they began dating, well, things moved pretty fast. We pretty much knew that uh, things were serious from the get-go. Whatever. I knew I had to tie it down (laughs) before she ran away. So, yeah, I wasn't going to mess around with that and was eager to keep that ball rolling. So we got married. That was So we graduated from Auburn in 2000. It was the spring of 02. And, you know, we had been friends, and the, being group friends helped. You know, we knew each other real well. I mean, the whole group did, the guys and the girls. So as things kind of changed between me and Dana, and I went to her, and I was like, hey, I think things are kind of changing, and kind of want to see where that goes. And she was like, no. No, we're not doing that. I'm in Birmingham. You're in Memphis. No. So two weeks went by, and I called her back, and I was like, okay, you're full of doo-doo. You know, she was like, okay, I am. And I was like, great, let's roll. So that springboard took off great for about two months. We did the long-distance thing from Birmingham, and the whole time in my head, I mean, I knew her well enough, and I was at a point where I was like, I'm not doing this to date forever. I don't. I didn't date a whole lot of people. You know, it wasn't my thing, I guess. So when this started going, I kind of knew what we were doing and where I wanted to go, and then she came back about a month before we got engaged and said, hey, this ain't going to work. I can't do long-distance, and I'm never moving to Memphis. Because we were in two different cities, and we had such a strong foundation for the last couple years, when he approached me about dating it just I think kind of panicked me because it was a big decision it wasn't just hey let's go out to dinner and see what happens we were long distance and the friendship was going to throw it immediately into serious territory and so I think I just freaked out a little bit at the beginning and then realized what we had with our relationship and I just really admired the way that he pursued me honestly and was just so strong in that way and knowing what he wanted and not letting my fears unfounded fears get in the way of that just kind of being able to see through me in a good way and then about a month or six weeks into dating um yeah I I kind of freaked out again and didn't want to move to Memphis and just kind of had a little come apart He talked me back from the ledge, and again, just like he had told me before, he was in it and not going anywhere. And I was able to struggle with all my own fears and doubts, knowing that he was gonna stay. And that gives you freedom, right, to to work through things. When you're not scared that person's just gonna bolt. Especially when they start to see, you know, some yucky sides of you. And we all have a yucky side. When we come back, more from Fraser and Dana Gieselman, more of their love story, their family story, and their healthcare story, here on Our American Stories, our What 
happens when story. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our What Happens When series, as always brought to us by our Chief Health Editor, Jim Glassman, Faith Garcia, doing the narrating and reporting. Let's get back to the Gieselman story in Memphis. The Gieselmans did not waste any time. They dated for three months, were engaged for three months, and then the newlyweds were off on their adventure together. Looking back today on their childhoods, families, churches, and years together before the birth of their first daughter, Anne Carlisle, the Gieselmans see it all as just preparation for the challenges to come. There's a a foundation there where you realize that the way you act out in marriage is just reflective of a lot of things, but it's death to self, right? And if if, if I'm dying to myself, putting her first as far as our marriage goes that plays itself out in a lot of aspects in life and of course nobody's perfect at it and of course we certainly stub our toes and (laughs) takes a lot of work but having the friendship that we built on and that foundation has helped a lot for where we are today we didn't know it then I mean we had no clue that what we were doing then was laying the foundation we would need for now which I mean is directly tied to to Christ and our faith and what those truths are in our lives and what we see it play out from day to day and and looking back and I mean just in little things even getting the six months and getting married you know and we had good time that seven years before we had in Carlisle was great time for us to build our relationship we needed a little extra time Of course, it wasn't all goofing off during those years. Frazier built a career in banking and Dana found a new calling. She had graduated with an exercise science degree, but she had always thought about becoming a nurse, except that hospitals made her queasy, not to mention needles. But she figured she could get over it if she wanted it bad enough. And nearby Union University allowed college graduates to get a BSN degree in nursing in just one year. It was a hard a hard year, but I'm very glad, and I did get used to hospitals and queasiness. Got used to. Um, I mean, tell and I went you and worked after graduating uh, at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in the NICU. That's the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Which is a special calling. 
which you are gifted to be called into that. I mean, I, every time I've only been up to the NICU, I think twice, I can't go in. I mean, it's a very hard place and hard to see the kids suffering, but it's beautiful to see Dana and the people that most of the people that work up there love those kids and are not intimidated at all. In fact, it gives them more reason to embrace, which I mean, I, I respect a ton the people that are able to do that. Which is a big deal. I mean, you didn't fall backwards into that. I mean, you were called. I mean, it was clear, like, I'm doing this. This is what I love. And it's been great seeing your passion. I mean, that was a, not just... Well, and it <laughs> seems that God was preparing me to even medically take care of my own children. Indeed, he was preparing them. The Gieselmans soon started having their own children. We had Ann Carlisle in 2009 and then <laughs> our brilliant plan was once we start having kids let's go ahead and have them so that as you move through each phase you you don't revisit it right so diapers being a big one once we put the diapers away i don't want them back out right <laughs> so let's get let's go through so we did uh they're basically 18 months apart so 2009 10 and 12 well, and we were able to get pregnant the first time pretty quickly, but we lost that baby with a miscarriage. And then it took us a while to get pregnant again. So that was a pretty hard time as well in our lives. When we had the miscarriage, I, we were upstairs in the panel room, you know, we just sat up there crying for a while. I mean, I remember saying it then, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just here with you. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what our path is. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I know that I'm not, I mean, I'm here. And that's where you you realize that what it does is it frees you to be broken. And as far as me and Dana go, I mean, it just was this deal. It's like, look, I'm, I want to be here. It's not just I'm going to be here. It's not just I don't have anywhere else to go. It's I want to be here. I'm not, <laughs> I well, don't want. You, you have to but you've built, actively love someone. You have to make a choice. You just have to choose to to be with that person. And I think fostering a friendship and keeping that friendship alive through our marriage. And Frazier and Dana have chosen well. Soon they had three beautiful daughters, Ann Carlisle, Mila, and Elle. Everybody was born healthy and had you know normal development Mila had a speech delay but other than that they were all extremely active strong-willed silly babies I, I joke because I'm I grew up very shy and introverted I just kept waiting for my little introverted child to come along and <laughs> none ever did <laughs> they all got the Gieselman jeans on that which is wonderful. I think it's helped all three of our children to have a feisty personality, even in just different ways. And then one day, Dana noticed something odd with their middle daughter, Mila, the one they like to call rough and tumble, because she so loved playing and being a complete ham. She was about two and a half and um, he had gone out of town for work and I had a babysitter coming over because I was going to go have dinner with some girlfriends. Right before the sitter got there, I had been feeding the three girls their dinner and Mila had finished and had gotten up and was kind of playing in the kitchen and I looked over and she was just frozen in space. 
one leg up, one arm kind of up, like a statue, just frozen. And I thought she was kidding with me because she was so silly all the time. And I just kind of was distracted with the other two girls, but kind of looked back at Mila and saying, you know, you silly goose, what are you doing? After a couple minutes of that, she fell down on her back and kind of bonked her head just a little bit. So I went over there and, you know, like you do with kids, you try not to make an injury a big deal because <laughs> then they'll think it's a big deal. So it's like, oh, you hit your head. It doesn't hurt. You're fine. You know, and um, so I was kind of doing that, tickling her and she wasn't responding. And I still kind of, I kind of was like, this is weird. But again, distracted by the other two, still thinking she was just kidding with me and laying there. And then I tickled her again, got no response. Her eyes were open, but no response. And she was kind of looking up at the ceiling. And I knew at that point something was wrong. I'm there by myself. I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old trying not to freak out. Minutes go by. I can't get Mila to respond to me. And at that point, I knew it was either seizure stuff or I thought she could possibly be having a stroke. My babysitter gets there, run to the door to let her in and tell her to call 911. It was one of the most scary times of my life, just not knowing if I'd ever get her back. She started to kind of come back around, but I had her in my arms and she was just sobbing and wailing my name. I was, you know, holding her close, kissing her, hugging her, talking right into her ear, and she could not, like, she did not know I was there. Not being able to comfort your child, even, and she was just so scared and, and all that was just very difficult and obviously not having Fraser there too, but the paramedics finally got there. Everything happening so fast that I think all I texted Fraser, I tried to call him, but he was at like a dinner with business and so he didn't answer and I texted, Mila's in the ambulance, <laughs> called me. So of course he's like, what in the world? But we, you know, they took us to live honor and she was fine the rest of the night. They wanted to observe her and everything. And that began the Gieselman family's quest to figure out what it was that was happening. It actually isn't all that odd for a kid to have one seizure, but that's not what Mila was going through. As the seizures picked up in the fall from November to January, it went from one a month to a hundred plus a day in January, and it only ramped up from there. Mila was soon in and out of various labs, getting all sorts of brain scans and other studies, but nothing offered a clear answer. Scans showed that Mila's brain was not growing, and then an MRI showed that it was actually degenerating. Our doctor knew it fell into a category of rare diseases that you don't want, (laughs) and that would take her life at an early age. I remember us sitting on that couch in the room and him sitting across from us telling us and like, I just, I didn't shed a tear. I was kind of like in medical mode and asking medical questions and things and thinking this is weird, why am I not crying? (laughs) But then he left the room and I literally just couldn't stand. And when we come back, this young married couple faces the biggest test of their lives. Our What Happens When story continues. The Gieselman story.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with the healthcare story of the Kieselman family. We just learned how parents Fraser and Dana got the most devastating news possible for young parents, any parents, that their daughter Mila, who was having hundreds of seizures a day, had a mystery disease that would almost certainly claim her life. Let's hear more from Dana. That was kind of the night we were having to deal with. Okay, life is not what we thought it was going to be. Neither of us could eat. You know, we spent the week just going, what in the world? I mean, there were no words, kind of. We would just sit there and go, what is happening? Two or three days after we left the hospital, they called us and said they had the genetic results. So then we knew it was actually Batten disease and that they could have it, the other two girls could have it, and that we needed to get them tested. So we went a month in the limbo of just trying to deal with what we knew about Mila at that point, and oh my gosh, do one of the other girls have it? Do they both? Will they all have this? And we were in the middle of moving to this house and doing some renovations. So it was just a crazy time. I was standing in the foyer directing the movers, where to put things. It was about 6 o'clock at night, and I get a phone call from our neurologist. And, you know, on a Saturday night, not good. He said, is Fraser around? Can I, y'all both get on the phone? And so we went outside and, and did, and he told us that Anne Carlisle didn't have it, wasn't even a carrier, but that Elle did. I remember exactly where we were sitting over there on the grass outside, and there were, you know, 20 people in our house, movers, family, friends, wonderful people trying to get us moved. So we kind of walked around the neighborhood a little bit, and, and I was like, everybody has to get out of the house. Like, I can't go back to the house and have 20 people in there, and nobody would clear out. Everybody was like, we've got to get the furniture. We've got to get, like, we at were, least Dana's bed sheets on. Of course, you we know, were like, but, no, you don't. Yeah. Get out. But um, so some people stayed for a little bit longer, and he just, Fraser wonderfully led me through the house and tucked me away in our room so I didn't have to deal with anything else and he kind of just took over and he's done that a lot <laughs> just protected me and kind of sheltered me from a little bit of the storm as much as he can and the next day was Mella's birthday and the hits they just kept on coming Three days after we found out her diagnosis is when Elle had her first seizure. Just watching TV, you know, half asleep on the couch, and Elle let out, like a, we heard on the monitor, like this kind of weird cry, like that she had never done before. And usually, you know, when a baby or toddler lets out one cry, you're kind of like, okay, let's see if they'll get back to sleep on their own. But fortunately, Fraser went back there immediately and comes running out with her, Elle's having a seizure. I mean, it just was kind of in that time period of like, what more, like, what more can we, I can't take anymore. And then more would just be like piled on, yeah, piled so. on, piled <laughs> on. Now with two young daughters who were having up to hundreds of seizures a day, the Gieselmans went into full caretaker mode. Modern medicine is absolutely amazing, but any good doctor will still admit that they have to do a lot of trial and error with all the tools in their kit. For these seizures, the Gieselmans had to figure out what drugs to use 
at what doses, and in what combinations. So the med combo we played, literally changing either meds or doses of meds once or more a week with Mila for over a year. To the point, like, we had to keep a written list. She was on anywhere from two to eight different medicines, three, four times a day, and... She did lay a good path for L, where we weren't playing as many games, a little bit more doses, not meds. So that was helpful, but with Mila, I mean, it was just, we had to write down the meds, and every time they change, you gotta go through and change what the meds are. So we had the drawer with the sheet of paper, which literally was having to be reprinted every two weeks, because you've made so many written changes on it. These drugs helped control the seizures, or at least reduce them. But that's just managing the most terrifying symptom not treating the actual Batten disease. A friend of Frazier's had invested in a drug company called Biomarin and told Frazier about a doctor in Columbus, Ohio, named Emily De Los Reyes, who was running a clinical trial that might help kids with Batten. Of course, Frazier and Dana sprung into action. The doctor was very kind, but she told them at the moment the study was closed, but that they should keep in touch, and that they did. We heard about the Batten's Disease Conference they do every year, and it was in Chicago. We found out about it about a week ahead of time, and we found out that Dr. Emily was going to be there. They were doing this study, and I don't know if I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that maybe someday it'd open up to more people. So we basically rearranged our schedule two days before the conference and just said, me and Dana are going, and we begged friends. Yeah, we begged friends to help keep the girls. So we get up there, and we hung out with Dr. Lewald, who is works with Dr. Emily, and Dr. Emily De Los Reyes, and just had a great time. I mean, that was our main purpose for going. We decided to go see Emily once every six months. Building that relationship with Dr. Emily, we were hopeful they were going to open a compassionate care, which means... The drug, which is being studied in a clinical trial setting, then the FDA will allow additional patients to take it that are not being studied as part of the trial. Basically, it's, you've got no other option. This drug is out there. We haven't approved it, but we're going to let some more slots open up so that more patients can get access to what may or may not ever get approved as a drug. The deal was, if it was going to open, we knew it would be through Columbus Nationwide Children's Hospital. And so we were just willing to stay in touch with Dr. Emily in case it ever did, and it kind of grew and developed. And Elle got into the program in September of 16. This meant that Dana would fly up to Ohio with Elle once every two weeks to get this experimental treatment. She had to have a port put in her brain. That's a reservoir under the skin that sits on top of the skull that's got a little tube that goes down to the middle of her brain. So the medicine goes in through a shot, which sits in the reservoir, and they spray in to over four hours. And it basically goes all the way down to the very center of her brain and then disperses from there. And it's giving her an enzyme her body doesn't make, which that's the deal. And so that enzyme cleans out the proteins in the brain cells. And if you don't clean out the protein, it kills off the brain cells. And what we're, what we're hopeful is, is that it'll stop the progression of the disease and then in time, let her start reconnecting and rebuilding damaged or, 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 or what, I mean, you know, it's just hard to say what part was killed off or is it a deflated balloon or did the balloon pop? You know, I don't know. We don't know and we're willing to take the chance to figure it out and we got time and, you know, I can't worry about what that looks like in a year. I'm trying to get through to dinner tonight. And what a couple, the Gieselman's journey 
A series of escalating challenges, dating, panic, marriage, miscarriage, and now this fatal diagnosis for two of their baby girls. And by the way, if you've ever seen Ordinary People, you know that most relationships don't survive such stress. That Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland film about the stress of a marriage when there was a loss of a life. And my goodness, this brought Frazier and Dana closer together. When we come back, the rest of this segment, what happens when your baby daughters are diagnosed with a fatal disease. And more on Frazier and Dana, their battle here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, by the way, to listen to all that we do. There are quite a number of What Happens When series. We also have some really fascinating stories from doctors in the field and what they go through every day in life struggles and life-saving and life's most difficult circumstances. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final segment of our What Happens When Healthcare Story. The Gieselman's two baby daughters were diagnosed with a fatal disease, but the youngest, Elle, had just gotten into a drug trial to send a cutting-edge medicine into the center of her brain to slow the disease. Let's hear more about this story from Faith. Sadly, this trial and its compassionate use came too late to help Mila. She passed away on November 26, 2016. We first met the Gieselmans some months after that, and Frazier was kind enough to talk a little bit about a subject that none of us really know how to talk about. The best way to paint the picture of Mila's death, especially in my life, and I've, I alluded or kind of talked about how me and Dana have different paths that we're going on. And I mean, Mila, I'm still much, very much in what I would call the fog of the death. And it's not nearly as uh, a reality, an acute deal. Like it's very hard if we sit down at the computer and start flipping through pictures. Like that, that gets real hard because it, I mean, that'll snap you out of the fog real quick. But other than that, I mean, like just day to day, I think about her a lot, but it just doesn't seem a reality. It's real fuzzy. And I have a hard time figuring out how that lifts. And I'm a little, I get frustrated that it hasn't lifted quicker because I'm concerned that I'm not, that it's going to lift and I'm going to have forgotten a lot of things. And so I wrestle through a lot of that through grief counseling and figuring out, like, I don't want to forget. I want to feel it, but there's a healthy side to the fog and the numbness so that you can make it through the initial, like shock is a good thing, right? You've got to have some of that. And like where Dana is, her fog has lifted a lot more than mine, and so she knows she's missing an arm, and she feels the nerves all dangling out everywhere, you know. So it's a, a very acute 
pain for her right now and it looks different than mine so grief can look a lot like depression or sadness can look like depression and they can be very different but look a lot alike and so that's kind of where we're a little different and but but for me and and where i am i mean there's a it's just the, the the reality is not there except it's very there's a very empty feeling like something's not there a lot of Fraser's friends ask him how he keeps working his day job looking for treatments for Batten and doing all the other normal daddy things during this fog of grief he has this great answer well man if I don't get up and put cereal in the girls bowls who will it's not a choice you're making that's the deal I mean that's that's the deal and so you just rest and we get glimpses of a bigger, more beautiful plan going on here. And quite frankly, I get a glimpse every day when I look at a picture of Mila because she's healed. And 90% of the pictures you're going to see of Mila, she's not healed. She's got braces or whatever. And, you know, it's hard not to look at it and know that she's doing a lot better now than she was. I just wish she was with me, right? I mean, it's, you know, I miss her. Much more has happened since we first met the Gieselman family. The nonprofit Kemmons Wilson Family Center for Good Grief that has been a huge help to Frazier, Dana, their oldest daughter, Ann Carlisle, and all their family and friends, opened a new location in Midtown Memphis, named after Mila Gieselman. And with the support of individuals, foundations, and corporations, Mila's house will help many more families through their grief journeys at no cost to them. The FDA also approved BioMarin's enzyme replacement therapy for this form of Batten disease. The new treatment is called Brunura, and it was approved with priority review, breakthrough therapy, and orphan drug designations, which assists and encourage the development of drugs for rare diseases. Because Elle has been on that treatment as part of the Compassionate Use Program, the disease has progressed much more slowly in her than it did in Mila. But taking a little kid on a three-day plane trip every two weeks is no cakewalk, even under the best of circumstances. So now that Brunura is approved, the Gieselmans fought to get the treatment delivered at their local Memphis hospital. This took some doing. Quite a lot, actually. Frazier was on the phone with the insurance company for one to three hours a day, five days a week, for two months. Both the drug company Biomarin and the local Memphis Labonard Children's Hospital were very supportive. But Brunura was still an incredibly new, specialized, and expensive medicine in process. Eventually, Blue Cross Blue Shield agreed to cover Elle's treatment. I guess they also realized that when it comes to taking care of their kids, nothing can get in the way of Frazier and Dana. They just won't quit. Let's end on this note. From Frazier. You know, when I was 25 and thinking where I wanted to be when I was 50 is different than where I am now and where I want to be at 50. You know, and we'll figure it out. It just may look a little different. We're not promised anything easy, good, or anything here. You're promised to be restored when you die and you're in heaven. So, you know, there is a bigger plan. We believe and know that God is using our story to bring more people to Him and to growth and do things bigger within His world. And I kind of remind people a lot of times, you know, it doesn't matter what if things are going good in my world or things are going bad in my world. I like it. I don't like it. Whatever. The sun's coming up tomorrow. And, you know, I can't stop the sun. I don't control the sun. 
it's just a kind of a reminder to get outside of your own head and realize that the earth the world nothing revolves around anything you get or don't get or what happens that I can't stop that sun and you know you just don't have as much control as you think you do and I think it hits on like the whole marriage thing and some of the foundations that we laid is you just trust like I'm gonna die to myself because there's a bigger plan here and what we've experienced is that in dying to yourself in a relationship here you do experience things in a different way and in a deeper way and it did lay a lot of foundation for a lot of what we've experienced in the last three to four years but even before that I mean even before things got crazy in our family life and all we still experienced a lot of that there, there, there is a goodness you experience a sense of joy, not necessarily happiness, which are different. And that's what I'd say we've experienced a lot of joy through everything we're going through, but we experienced a lot of that joy even before that. It's kind of like, I liken it to uh, when you tell somebody you love them, you know you love them, but uh, what we say a lot is, I like you. And the whole point being, like, I choose to love you. We made the vows, I made the commitments, and I'm not going anywhere. But also, I like you. Frazier, Dana, and Carlisle, Milla and Elle are hard people not to like. And great job to the entire team, as always. And now we're joined by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. And Jim, we've heard a few of these stories now. This is a young Christian couple in the South. We had a secular couple in the Midwest. And I think we're going to be hearing from every type of faith, every class, and every creed of citizen here about our, our stories about health care. What does it take to discover, develop, and bring to market drugs like this one that are extending this incredible couple's young daughter's life? Well, drugs are very expensive to develop. So probably the best study of this done by a center at Tufts University and actually repeated uh, over many years now says that on average it costs $2.8 billion to bring a drug to market, to go through a period which typically takes about 15 years, uh, many, many failures along the way. So it's not, it's not very easy. And it's extremely risky and extremely costly to bring a drug to the point where human beings can actually use it. And what about rare disease drugs in particular, Jim? As we mentioned, these drugs can be extremely expensive, but are often the only options for patients in life or death situations. How do these drugs fit into our healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really the big problem because the, the driver for the kind of money that needs to be spent on research for the typical drug, uh, all this money is really the result of the fact that at the end, you've got a, a market. I mean, I hate to use that word, but that's true. You've got an audience for a medicine that will save people's lives. In the case of, of orphan drugs or uh, diseases that very few people have, there's not that big an audience. And that's why public policy, government policy, has to somehow favor these kinds of drugs, give them a little bit of a boost. And when that happens, you see a lot more of these drugs come onto the market. And that really all began in the mid-1980s. And now we're really seeing a lot of orphan drugs being produced. And that's a great thing for families like the Gieselins. And Jim, I think just to clarify, you know, when we're looking at heart drugs, 
Um, this, this disease affects so many people that drug companies are going to go in there because they're going to, well, let's face it, they're in, the, they're in the business to get a return. There are a lot of people who suffer from a heart disease. These are narrow, narrow diseases. Talk about that. That's right. So the government gives an incentive, which is basically the ability to get the drug approved very quickly and also uh, to essentially market uh, to other drug companies an ability to get drugs approved quickly. And this is, this is very important to drug companies. I mean, obviously, the drug has to meet the standards of the Food and Drug Administration, but there's a, a fast-track system. So that's the incentive, and I think that's a very good incentive that seems to be working. But I want to have one other thing that's really important. Drug companies learn, scientists learn from their failures. They learn even in a case where they're making a drug for a very small number of people. And what they learn in developing that drug for a small number of people can be applied to many. So we're going to see that, and we already are seeing that with orphan drugs. Well, Jim, thanks as always. And it's Jim Glassman, our chief health editor here at Our American Stories, our What Happens When series, and what a family, what a story. And thanks, Jim, as always, for bringing these stories to us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the Gieselman story, and what a story it is. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear more of our What Happens When series.